0: Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. It's a holiday Monday, family day edition, uh, but we wanted to be able to react to everything that happened over the weekend. So we do that with David Aiken, uh Global News Chief Political Correspondent on the weekend that was, and what may be ahead, certainly in the House of Commons over the next 24, 48 hours. We'll see how timely uh, all our thoughts hold up, given it's a a lot of moving pieces, a lot of moving targets on this one. Mike Moffitt uh, usually joins us to talk geography, demographics, real estate, but he's an Ottawa resident. We wanted him to weigh in on what he'd experienced over this time, over the last 22 days in our nation's capital. And lots of reaction as well on the Queen testing positive for COVID. We'll talk a little bit about that on the show as well. She's 95 years old, and she's going to keep working from home. Um, This could be, to be honest, somewhat inspiring to people looking for a pathway out, if you will, of uh, COVID-19 and COVID-19 restrictions. We'll get there as well. It's the Toronto Today podcast, and it begins now. Our next guest joins us uh, pretty frequently. We love having him on, but again, we usually talk about demographics and who's moving here and who's moving there. I love that stuff. I love those conversations. Uh, Mike Moffitt, senior director at the smart prosperity Institute and a business economics prof also at Western university. Uh, and he joins us now. Um, I was gonna, about to say this would never ever happen in London, Ontario. You would never have occupiers, you know uh, you know, walking into the seeps or Joe cools and causing problems, but I can't prove that maybe that's coming. Maybe that's coming in the next six months. Uh, we couldn't have predicted the last three weeks. I'll put it that way
1: yeah it it could be next i i I hope for the the people at uh oxford and richmond that doesn't happen because it's been uh it's been a wild four weeks uh it's been very loud uh very smelly a lot of diesel exhaust so i think uh residents of downtown ottawa are just so happy that this is over
0: so my recollection is we can do some chronological stuff there um is that so we're talking three weeks ago on sunday so 22 days ago now I remember the concept was from the mayor, even the premier weighed in and uh, and the prime minister was absent until Monday night in the House of Commons. And that was well documented. That's even the weekend um, Pierre Paulie announced he was running for prime minister. I know that feels like eight weeks ago, but it's three weekends ago. And my thought was, Mike, that, um, you know, everyone was like, well, okay, uh, you can go home now. You've made your point. And I'm like, but they're telling you that they're not going home. They're telling you this is not a scheduled, you know, 2 to 5 p.m. protest on a Saturday. They're telling you they're here and, and planning roots down. Do, do you think leaders knew that and just didn't address it? Or or somehow were they blindsided by the idea that this was going to become the quote-unquote occupation it became?
1: Well, I think that's one of the big questions residents are, are having in Ottawa right now. Because, the, the, the you know, the, the convoy said that they were here to stay uh, before they even got here. So we're sort of questioning that because, you know, Ottawa has a lot of protests. Ottawa has a lot of events. So, for instance, uh, during Canada Day, they, you know, block off the streets and you couldn't, uh, you know, put a an uh, 18-wheeler out by Parliament Hill. So a lot of local residents are asking, like, where were the police on this? Why did the police allow the, these large trucks to sort of occupy... Uh, you know, occupy residential neighborhoods uh, downtown. I think if you're not from Ottawa. I, I don't think you realize how small and residential yeah. our, our downtown is. So this is not, you know, this is not just trucks in front of office buildings, but this is trucks in front of apartments and condos and, and even some houses.
0: I mentioned that sort of, um, you know, NIMBYism aspect. And for one day, and this was two weeks ago Saturday, so we're talking 16 days removed for it now, there were protests in downtown Toronto. But that was it. It was one day. They walked down, you know, uh, Avenue and blur and they, and they, you know, kept things a little bit busy and kept the cops all out. But I, I wonder if people in Ottawa felt that nobody in any other major city, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, really quite understood, as you document, that this wasn't just a isolated area. You could have a, a beautiful home on a beautiful street. Real estate's not cheap in Ottawa. And all of a sudden there's a diesel fuming, constantly running, horn honking truck in front of your residents not for one day but for several
1: well well absolutely i mean there's about 50,000 people uh who live in the area so it, and it's not just the trucks as well i mean they had to shut down a lot of stores including uh grocery stores pharmacies uh things like that so it was hard to get food locally and then plus you know you couldn't have a pizza delivered right like uber eats uh and the delivery places were not going to go downtown because there was no. nowhere to go so, you know, this was an issue for local residents of getting enough food. Uh, you know, we have friends who are downtown, and, you know, we would walk sort of care packages up and that kind of thing. So this wasn't just loud honking and things like that. This sort of affected uh, people's day-to-day lives.
0: Uh, Mike Moffat is our guest, of course, on uh, Toronto Today when did you really get the sense um, that this was this was a lot longer than so if we if we wind the clocks back to three weeks ago today and it's the Monday after that opening weekend and uh, and it's just not normal I, I remember the the Rito Center ended up they announced well we're we're closing for today and for the rest of the week because when they did open on that on that first Saturday they were besieged by people again you know w- without masks and going here and going there when did you get the sense this was going to be Um, A long haul and and that the protesters were really getting emboldened and empowered by the lack of the lack of pushback against them.
1: I think that Monday, that that first Monday was eye opening for everyone that the Rideau Center was not opening. We did have some people leave, uh, but a lot of them were were staying. Uh, They were either camped up downtown. There were a couple other sites. We have a baseball stadium. Uh, here in Ottawa, that they were, they were using that that parking lot as a staging ground. There was another one, sort of in rural areas. But that that was the Monday that I think was eye-opening for everyone. That you know, there some of them left, but most of them were here to stay. They weren't going anyplace, and you know, Centertown was going to be shut down for the uh, foreseeable future.
0: Um, when do you figure the city will seem normal again? You're weeks away, aren't you? Yeah. Aren't you? Are it, like just just yeah. being able to go experience, um, you know, f- full capacity for events. Some of that's some of that's COVID, as we seem to be pushing towards. Uh, you know, reopening a lot of things, and that's an issue unto itself. But when does Ottawa seem like Ottawa again?
1: I think when the Rideau center opens, I think that's going to be uh, a big thing for for local residents. Say, okay, you know, the mall, the downtown mall is back open. Uh, some of the stores are back open. And I I think we're a couple days away from that, as far as I can tell. There's still some of the checkpoints. Uh, so if you want to go places downtown, uh, you you have to show police ID. So once once the police leave, the Rideau center is open. I, I think we'll finally have a sense of normalcy. We're not there yet, but I'm hopeful. You know, sometime in the next week or so.
0: Uh, The mayor, I described him as embattled. Um, It's a it's an interesting scenario, given that he isn't running again, but that he was incredibly um, popular in a fixture in Ottawa for a long, long time, whether it was, um, you know, in whether it was in municipal, municipal politics or whether it wasn't. Um, It's really hard now for him, isn't it, to to regain an element of uh, of trust and uh, and belief? Or or is it possible? Can he do things over the next couple of weeks to, to, to run it back?
1: no i don't i don't think he can i think it's important to remember that the the mayor was embattled before all of this happened we had our lrt which has been a complete uh fiasco so it's kind of annoyed that lrt is annoyed downtown residents because it doesn't work but it's also annoyed suburban residents because it was uh hugely expensive so sort of waste of taxpayer money so this was a mayor who was already having popularity issues couple this on top of it, it's, you know, he, you know, there's, there's no way he can, he can run again. And I think he will probably be taking a long vacation for a while and, and laying low because uh, he is not uh, very well liked right here, right now.
0: I'd love for you to be able, Mike, to weigh in on uh, on the media and uh, not just how difficult it was to do their jobs. I watched all the networks, not just not just ours with Global, but I watched you yeah. know reporters engaging with protesters um, and and being civil. And some of the protesters were fine. Some were obviously viscerally angry, rude. There was an example. I think this was in Quebec City of uh, of, of two guys spitting on a reporter. It's terrible um, to watch anything like that go on in in our country, but. I do wonder whether at the start some of these protesters got really emboldened, and uh, as I said again, and and just said, well, they'll just stick a microphone in our face, and we can say anything, and they'll air it that night. It's all—it's almost like the first couple of days. The crazier the statement was, when we go back to three weekends ago, the more likely we were get on to get on TV, and and that gets you into dangerous territory if the protesters think uh, this is working for us, or they think the coverage is biased. How did you view it?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I think incentives here were, were so messed up that for instance, you know, the, the, the police would, would tend to enforce the people causing the least amount of problems, right, because they were the least dangerous. So that kind of emboldened mm. everybody uh to be louder, more in your face. And and same thing with the media, um, that oftentimes they were they were naturally looking for the best visuals, the people with the most to say. And that tended to be the loudest, angriest crowd. And I think, you know, in retrospect, I think we're going to have to look back and, and see how various uh, groups, you know, inadvertently fed that fire. Because it did seem that, you know, not, not on purpose, but accidentally we were egging people on to be more in your face, to be more loud, to cause more issues for local residents and so on.
0: It's not like that. It's not a, you're, the wrestling villain gets to the ring, right? And he hears booze, and then he waves his arms in the air and puts his hand up to his ear. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking more Hulk Hogan, uh, uh NWO era, than anything else. I think, I think that's what I'm thinking
1: yeah definitely attitude right yeah and you see you saw the, the the videos of that right there would be local uh residents who you know would be shedding from their balcony and nagging people on and i think that's the unfortunate thing about this that a lot of people miss that you know center town is it's a lot of people there are like bartenders and waiters and and people who work at Tim horton's It's not you know this Protest did not happen where the politicians are, and it didn't really happen where the bureaucrats are. It's a very sort of working-class neighborhood. So you had all of these local residents who have been affected more than anybody else in Canada mm-hmm. on all the mandates and stuff. Uh, so if anybody would be sympathetic to the protesters, it w- you, w- you would think it would be them. The, but like they're the,
0: they're the ones that have to leave their homes to go to work, um, right? Yeah. They're, they're not the quote-unquote laptop or pajama class. They, they've, you can't wait tables from home. You've got to be there.
1: Well, exactly. Like I have a, a friend who lives in the neighborhood as a manager of a local restaurant, and they were finally just reopening, getting be, able to get people back in. And, you know, this occupation kind of shut them down. So it was one of the real ironies of this is that the people who were affected mm-hmm. most by this occupation were the very people that the occupiers claimed to represent. And you had almost this kind of like civil war happening.
0: Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, hey, uh, thank you very much for uh, for giving us your insight. And I always enjoy our conversations, Mike. Take care and uh, enjoy your family day with your family. Thanks for making the time. Well, thank you for having me. Global uh, TV's chief political correspondent, David Aiken. David, it's great to have you on the show here in Toronto, uh, as always. Give me your sense. We'll get to the weekend. But what will be the, um, the tone, the message from uh, Christopher Freeland this morning at 11 o'clock and a couple hours from now?
2: Yeah, it's Christopher Freeland. It's the prime minister. It's uh, the justice minister. It's the whole gang of them at 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they'll want to talk about the weekend's events, uh, presumably, uh, for sure. Thank the police and so on. Uh, the police, by the way, from all across the country, lots of Toronto police, Durham police were here talking to them yesterday, um, uh, doing the, the uh, you know, incredible dramatics things they were doing on the weekend. And, you know, I think the first question they're going to get, and I've seen conservatives ask this question. They've been asking in the House of Commons yesterday and again today. And remember, they've been debating today, too. You can turn on CPAC right now. They've been mm-hmm. going since 7, and they're <laughs> going to go to, you know, uh, until they vote, is now that it's pretty clear Ottawa is in recovery mode, that the protest has been clear, the occupation's over, all the vehicles are gone, now that that's happened... Why do you need the Emergencies Act? Why don't you just lift it uh, right away? And so I think that will be the, uh, you know, whether or not the prime minister and uh, ministers want to talk about that, um, you know, I'm going to be there. And if I don't ask that question, I'm pretty sure some reporter is going to put that there uh, right off the bat. Because in the debate, this is what the Conservatives have been saying all weekend. They oppose the invocation of the Emergency Act. And uh, they and the Bloc Québécois have been saying, listen, Windsor got cleared coots got cleared without the federal emergencies act ontario yes ontario invoked its provincial emergency act but the federal emergencies act wasn't uh, declared when windsor got cleared so why did we need this now over the weekend police here in ottawa as they were going through this they had press conferences every afternoon they said they got asked about it and they said listen the the th- some of the authorities that the police got under the federal emergencies act were useful in getting rid of the occupation here in Ottawa. So the liberals in the House have been relying on that, saying, hey, the police say they, they like it. In fact, th- when we asked, uh, we, when we've asked the government, when will you lift the Emergencies Act? because uh, it's, it's only, it's, it's, it's there for a month if, if it, nobody lifts it. Uh, the response from the government has been when police tell us that they no longer need those authorities. And one of the most controversial powers under the Federal Emergencies Act is the power to compel banks to freeze the bank accounts of those identified as leading the convoy or participating in it. Uh, one of those leaders of the convoy, a woman named Tamara Leach from Lethbridge, you may have seen her over the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. she had her account frozen. And we know that because she got arrested Thursday. She was in court on Saturday, and she told the judge, you know, she, her account's been frozen and she can't pay the $1,700 hotel bill that she racked up while she was here. She's still in jail. About 20 are still in jail. Uh, judges reserving decisions on bail until tomorrow morning. And I should point out that you know they're facing, by and large, mischief charges. They're not like just oh mischief. You'll pay a fine. Many people may not know this, but mischief is very much a context-dependent sanction. So the the uh, the crown and the judge will, if you're convicted of mischief, will look at well what was the what was the consequences of your mischief? Did it result, for example, in shutting down the national capital for three weeks? And if a judge says this was very serious, what you did. You could be looking at 10 years in jail. You could be looking at life in prison in some circumstances, or you could pay a fine. So, again, very Mm. serious charges with some very serious sanctions, even though it's a, quote, mischief charge that uh, some of these uh, organizers and found-ins are facing.
0: David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, joining us on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. I know the Mark Strahl uh, tweet got a lot of attention. So, yeah, y- you know, I mentioned that uh, he's a, he's an MP out in uh, in Chilliwack. And he brought up a case study of a woman named Brienne. described her as a single mom from Chilliwack on a minimum wage job. She gave $50 to the convoy uh, and has her bank account frozen. But there are people asking Mr. Strahl. They are saying, I- I- I'm going to need a little bit more than that document it that seems like a strange one that someone who gave fifty dollars would have their entire uh you know financial assets frozen by the federal government here and there's a lot of people that want to unravel that and see if that's accurate
2: well i'm one of them and in fact i sent uh, mark (laughs) straw again he's a conservative mp so he opposes the emergency act Uh, and i did uh, you know i sent a note to his office and to his uh, personal email saying you know, can you connect me with uh, with Brienne? I mean, the, a lot of reporters. This mm-hmm. is that would be a very compelling story to to talk to her about her situation. He hasn't responded yet. Uh, and yesterday on the West Block with our colleague Mercedes Stevenson, uh, she interviewed Bill Blair, the uh, the former Toronto Police Chief and the the current Minister for Emergency Preparedness. And Blair said that no that the government and the police are not interested in someone who gave 25 bucks or 50 bucks donated that to a the freedom convoy the police this is bill blair we're not okay. interested in the donors they are interested in if you donated to whom the the leaders of the organization the corporations uh you know but, uh truck companies or whatever that uh, allowed their resources to be used. That's the people they want. And we did get some data over the weekend. Only 76 accounts, or uh, you depending on which way you look at it, that may be too many, maybe too little, but 76 bank accounts have been frozen. I guess one of them was Brianne's, if you if you take Mark Straw at his word. Mm-hmm. And in those accounts was a combined $3.2 million that authorities say would have been used to support the occupation here. So, seven, so w- you know, we may hear some more about that this morning. It, the, uh, you know, that would be from the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Krista Freeland. She's been the lead on talking to financial institutions. Uh, tell us more about the who and how, and when will these accounts be unfrozen? Will they be unfrozen? I mean, one of the interesting things, one of the fallout from this whole event is that Freeland's already telegraphed that some of these measures put in place to track... Um, uh finances that are being used uh to fund illegal activity they're going to be permanent uh maybe not giving banks the powers to freeze assets but uh some of the uh some of the issues around forcing crowdfunding sites to register with the government of Canada and when you register then you've got to obey regulations and you can't do yeah. business here in Canada if you if you don't register and you don't uh, allow for some oversight by by the government so there's going to be some changes to I think the way the government gives itself the power to enforce the way money moves to potential legal activity, and that could have implications for, say, you know, there's uh, some of our colleagues, Sam Cooper, have done great work uncovering mm-hmm. how uh, Chinese gangs from overseas are money l- laundering their money through real estate transactions in the Lower Mainland and BC. Um, and you know, well, why mm-hmm. why haven't we used these financial uh, sort of uh, powers before for crimes like that? Well, now we now we might be doing that.
0: We might. Yeah. David Aikens joining us. Uh, I got about 90 seconds free, and you probably got to hustle also. But any kind of curveball that could be thrown by the new Democrats tonight. We played the clip of uh, Leah Gazan. She's she seems adamant uh, in blaming, yes, the opposition party for fanning the flames, but also thinks this is a tremendous overreach by the liberal government. Jagmeet Singh said he'd keep a close eye on what he deemed as oversight. But do you expect the NDP tonight to to go along to get along here?
2: There's a lot of moving parts. I mean, again, one of the things that the government may do, and Bill Blair sort of telegraphed this yesterday, is fine tune or maybe withdraw some of the powers. And is that good enough, then, for the NDP? Have they been watching the debate and saying, you know, we got to throw the NDP a bone here? Um, but, yes, there, there's definitely, there are liberals. I can tell you there are liberals who are uncomfortable with this invocation of the Emergencies Act. Now that the blockade in Ottawa has been removed and all the other borders across country, you know, there's po- police have had to step in over the weekend here and there. But the borders are all clear. You know, do we still need it? Um, you know, that will be, that will be, I think, M- MPs will, uh, on all parties will be thinking about that. And that means if they vote yeah. it down, because if, if the, if the vote doesn't survive, they don't get a majority of the government, that's it. The Emergencies Act is done. It's over. All the powers are end. Um, and some MPs may say that the consequences of that wouldn't be so bad because the provincial emergency would still be in place. And there are other criminal laws that police could still use to enforce the blockade around Uh, Parliament Hill. So it's going to be an interesting day with the debate uh, and vote set for about 7.30 p.m. tonight.
0: It's been fascinating. It's been fascinating. Uh, We'll be watching your coverage, David. Thanks very much for making time for our audience today.
2: Great. Thanks. Cheers.
0: Secretary of State for the United States, Antony Blinken, was on CBS's Face the Nation yesterday and was asked um, a pretty important question. Now listen to how uh, perfunctory his answer is here when asked um, if the U.S. would recognize Crimea. It's really complicated, but we'll explain some of it. Or any other territories in eastern Ukraine as part of Russia. Was, Was the U.S. looking for a diplomatic way out to make sure there isn't a larger war in eastern Europe? Here's the exchange. When I spoke
3: with the Russian ambassador, he referred to Crimea, that part of southern Ukraine that was annexed by Russia in 2014, as part of the Russian Federation. Will the U.S. uh, in any way consider recognizing that, ceding that territory or any territories in the east of Ukraine as a diplomatic way out to avoid a larger war? No. No. Hard stop. That is not up for negotiation.
4: That's correct. (laughs)
0: Fun for the interviewer. Uh, That's Maggie Brennan, who's great, by the way, she's great on CBS. But uh, yeah, there's not much that uh, that Secretary Blinken can uh, elaborate on that. So there is potential is potential um, for something to get settled. Some believe without this turning into a massive, massive military conflict, but all eyes of the world are on it right now. I want to bring on Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto, Oral Braun, to talk about it with me. Professor Braun, thanks very much for making the time on Family Day. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Tell me your thoughts on, uh, on, well, I I guess that that Q&A exchange right there, is that something Russia would be looking for, or do you see them as being, no, there's not many diplomatic ways out of this. Uh, They want military conflict with Ukraine. It's all led up to this. They're not going to pull back uh, based on on what we know now.
4: Anthony Blinken could not have said anything else but to uh, reject the idea of recognizing Russia's aggression and illegal annexation of Crimea, because that basically would say that the United States was prepared to accept the blatant violation of international law. It did not apply. And uh, essentially, that is uh, a non-starter. In reality, however, when you look at the negotiations that have taken place, such as they are, there's very little talk about getting Russia to move out of Crimea or mm-hmm. from Eastern and Donbass. And uh, all the talk is about preventing Russia from further aggression. So there are changes that are going on by the hour. The details are important, but it is also essential, I would suggest, that we step back and look at the big picture. And the big picture is the deterrence has failed. That is, Western deterrence has failed. We would not be here if that deterrence had worked. Here's Russia, a remnant of the Soviet Union, basically bullying the the largest, most powerful alliance in human history, as well as, of course, Ukraine, the intended target. A war already is going on because there are many dimensions of war, not just kinetic conflict. There's economic warfare, and Ukraine is suffering. Airlines, because of the crisis, uh, such as Lufthansa and Air France, have dropped flying or are about to drop flying to Kiev, and to key cities uh, like Odessa. Insurance companies are refusing to provide insurance for Ukrainian companies. Russia has also closed off uh, for air traffic mm-hmm. the Azov Sea, that blocks part of uh, Ukraine's coastline. So there are multiple elements of warfare, cyber war, that are taking place already, this continuing annexation of Crimea and the, uh, the west is doing very little, and you can see the frustration in the case of the president of ukraine he was very blunt in an interview with, uh cnn yesterday he yeah. said the west needs to choose between deterrence or appeasement
0: it's very true i i but you know it's amazing to consider um the united states and and it's not the same but with the pullout of afghanistan with all the criticism about a 20-year war You know, you and I both know our audience knows that politicians do things when they when they are politically savvy and have some benefit as opposed to just doing delineating between right and wrong. There may not be an appetite among the American people for America to get too involved with this. And whether you and I think that's right or wrong, I I wonder how it how it lands on Joe Biden's desk, whether he sees this as being an opportunity or something just to just to try and solve diplomatically, but not necessarily outside of sending um, you know, arms and and, and outfitting um, Ukrainian forces. There's only so involved the U.S. will get. Do you think that's a fair statement?
4: It is a dilemma for any country. Obviously, it is preferable to have some kind of diplomatic solution to war. War is unpredictable. It can escalate very quickly. If anyone escalates to nuclear war, this is what Russia has threatened. Uh, but it is also something... Uh, in terms of looking at reality. It is not just the nice of international law or international morality. We have to look at what Russian demands are. So if we think that this is only about Ukraine, then we're not reading what the Russians are telling us. And the Russian demands are not just that Ukraine never joined NATO, and by that what they mean is that Ukraine has to become at the very least a vassal state to Russia, and the 43 million people of Ukraine have no right to choose their own faith, but they are also saying, the Russians, that they want NATO troops, which are there on a rotating basis, including Canadian troops in Latvia. They have to be removed. The countries of Eastern Europe that joined NATO beginning in 1997 would be left absolutely naked to future Russian aggression. So if we are under the illusion that if we just give up on Ukraine, and let Russia have Ukraine, despite uh, whatever the wish of the Ukrainian people is, uh, would be, that is sadly not going to work out because that is not the end of Moscow's demands. It is the beginning of Vladimir Putin's demands.
0: Well, you get emboldened, don't you? It, it, once once you see, um, it, you know, uh, you're able to annex this country and annex this country, the 20th century is pretty rife with historical examples of it. And the Soviet Union's no different, is no different um, post-World War II, uh, is it, Professor Braun? It's it's something to keep an eye on. It's not, that doesn't satisfy Vladimir Putin. That, that means, well, w- what's next uh, now that there wasn't much resistance to Ukraine, isn't it?
4: This is part of the problem. There's a Russian expression that the appetite grows with eating. And Vladimir Putin, in many respects, has failed inside Russia because he has failed to build a modern state. It is a poor country with wealthy oligarchs. It is a large kleptocracy that is in search of an ideology. He wants to stay in power. He doesn't want to have the threat of democracy. But he stays in power by trying to create external crises. This is standard in the case of dictatorships. You divert popular attention away from domestic problems by saying, we are surrounded, we are about to be attacked, we are the victims, I am the only one that can save you. Don't look at your problems, don't look at the fact that we are jailing, poisoning, or killing opposition leaders, or beating up protesters, or shutting down human rights organizations. Look at the threat and I am saving you. I, Vladimir Putin, am saving you. And of course you have to keep escalating that because it's subject to its own laws of diminishing returns. And this is, the, this is the danger. Where is the line? Uh, and we must remember again, that Ukraine was not asking President Biden or the Germans who sent troops inside Ukraine to fight. They were asking, have been asking, give us the means to resist. And most of the Western countries, Germany included, and until very recently, even Canada, we have not been willing to provide Ukraine with defensive armaments, and even what President Biden has been providing, this crisis was very evident back in April, has been a tiny trickle of armaments, not opening up the spigot to make Russia pay a cost for invasion.
0: We're talking to uh, Professor Oral Braun, uh, Professor of Political Science at U of T. Last thing for you, is this a true, can this be defined as a wag the dog moment for, for Vladimir Putin, or? Do his does his electorate, if you will, see through that and see this as an offensive move rather than a defensive move. We've obviously we've seen wag the dogs in North America plenty of times in the United States and Canada. Um, But but with Russia, it's the does the electorate feel he's helping us be on the defensive here as opposed to, you know, trying to annex another country to Russia.
4: If there aren't many human losses and he manages to do this there will be enthusiasm as there was enthusiasm initially with the annexation of Crimea. Mm-hmm. If there are significant casualties, if there is resistance afterwards, if there is an insurrection, should he take over Ukraine? And we just don't know what his plans are. Then that could be very, very different. Uh, Mr. Putin has won a great deal already so far. Whatever Anthony Blinken has said, I don't think the West is prepared to reverse what happened in Crimea. Mm. So Mr. Putin just uh, could take his winnings and cash them in. But he might turn out to be greedy. He might be tempted Mm. by the weakness that is shown by the West. We talk about Western unity, but under the surface, there isn't uh, enough. And so this is the great danger. Is he going to be tempted to want more?
0: Yeah, we're watching Uh, every day. It feels like the story evolves just a little bit. Professor Braun, thanks very much for making the time for our audience. We appreciate it.
4: You're very welcome.
0: The Winter Olympics wrapped up. You probably noticed that. Um, But then again, maybe you didn't. It's sort of like the movie Cats, right? It was in theaters, but you didn't see it. No one did. And no one you know did. You may have gone to the Cats musical in Toronto. My family did that, but you didn't see Cats in the theater so the winter olympics may be something you know of you probably watched the women's hockey game um because like 2.2 million canadians did but um but yeah it wasn't it, it just didn't it left us wanting more we got to get these back in a normal time zone we got to get these back in um a non-authoritarian country uh they go to uh italy uh, next time out in milan cortina in 2026 all oh, that'll be beautiful beautiful um uh now the 1988 olympics were in calgary and one of the memorable stories from it was that of the jamaican bobsled team and that's documented in the fantastic global news what happened to series on curious cast and sort of the quarterback for the curious cast uh toronto division is rob johnston and he joins me now to talk a little bit about that podcast you you know you stay up you like your sports you'll get up at six in the morning to watch uh Liverpool FC and their (laughs) ill-fated attempt to track down Man City, although now I'm worried about it, but nonetheless It's
3: not that ill-fated anymore, (laughs) my friend
0: It was ill-fated 10 days ago I know, I know (laughs) It was oh good when
3: Norwich when Norwich went up 1-0. I gotta admit I wasn't too impressed. But here we are. Anyway.
0: Yeah, Norwich, the Jamaican bobsled team of the Premier League, uh, in essence. Um, but this story really is is something. Um tell us a little bit about the genesis of it. Eric Avella uh, is the is the narrator for it and did a lot of the legwork for it, and it's available on Apple Podcasts, but it's it's still it's still that tale of yore that um I, when i dug into it there was stuff i absolutely forgot and there were, there were there was stuff even i didn't even remember from it and i saw cool runnings i saw the 1993 film with john candy <laughs> which sort of mythologized this group
3: which 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 does happen right i mean you got to remember it came out from disney so there was a little bit of that um artistic license if you will um i think what's amazing about this story is as you say you you forget details about it and one of the great things Erica did is she tracked down Devin Harris, who was one of the one of the competitors on the team. He was one of the, I think um, he was one of the four, and he kind of walked us through everything that happened and how they really got to where they were. I mean, it, what's interesting is the bobsled comes from you know it's a whole it's a winter uh, event from way back in the twenties and the thirties, and was sort of you know European aristocrats, right, who would run these sleds down Saint Moritz and all these other Uh, Venues during the Olympics. But how did these guys from Jamaica end up in this competition? Well, they have this event in in Jamaica called the Pushcart Derby, which Mm -hmm. is like bobsled, but on dirt, using pushcarts. So there were a couple of Americans who were in Jamaica at the time, and they saw these guys do it, and they said, that looks like bobsledding. Have you guys ever considered doing bobsledding? And I thought, well, how could we do that? We, We live in Jamaica. There's no snow around here. Um, and a lot of the guys on the team came from from the army, so they they you know they're big, they're physically fit. and one thing that they did understand was teamwork and how to work together with discipline is and that's what you need in Bobsled. so it's a great story, and he walks us through how they came together, where they participate, you know where they trained because at that point in time, back in you know, early 80s, there weren't that many bobsled tracks around. There weren't, there weren't any in Canada except for Calgary, which was being built. There was Lake Placid in, in New York State. There was a bunch in Europe, but there weren't as many as there are now because there weren't as many Winter Olympics venues as there are now. So they thought, well, you know, if Canada doesn't have a venue, the US only has one. Countries like France don't have an, a track. Why can't we really participate in this? Who says we can't do this? So it's, it's, he tracks us through the, you know, the genesis of how they came together. Um, And I think what a lot of people forget was 98 or 88 wasn't the only year they did this. You know, they, they were in the winter Olympics up until 98. Um, And then they came back this year. So Erica tracked down the current members of the bobsled team and talked to them when they were in Beijing. So we have this great narrative that goes front to back from, from, you know, the evolution all along the way. Um, I think it, it's, it's a fantastic story. And as we as I was digging in, as we were digging into this, I remembered that Erica also did an episode. If you go into the feed, you'll find one on the Lucky Looney, how that all came into play, back in back in mm. uh,
0: Salt Lake California, 2002, Canada, right?
3: Salt Lake 2002, and through the other ones through 2010. And we also did an episode on history of the 90s, um, Kathy Conzora's show. On snowboarding in the '90s, and we talked to Ross Bagliati, who I think a few people might remember about the '98 Games in Nagano. A little incident happened there that kind of brought snowboarding into the forefront of of people's minds.
0: Yeah, when you come off the when you win your gold medal in snowboard, and then you come off the uh, you know uh, uh, off the venue, and it smells like you've been at a Steve Miller Band concert. <laughs> it's things are a little different this is the weird one too that four man in um in calgary won by switzerland east germany soviet union there were there were total bobsled powers i'm sure i mentioned i, I linked this to eddie the eagle before we came back they yeah. they're going to participate they didn't have any designs on winning or meddling this was just go because i always make this point like even even teams that go to the world juniors and play canada and lose 15 nothing or College football players that go to Alabama and lose 42 to three, at least you win. You you can talk about yeah. that the rest of your life.
3: Yeah. And, and, you know, Devin talks about this because he says he really got into the idea of the Olympic ethic back in watching a documentary leading up to the uh, 1980 Moscow Olympics. And he, he got to this point where, like, you know, anybody can be an Olympian if they find the right thing and put their heart and desire into it. And it doesn't mean you have to win, but it's all part of the adventure and it's all part of the spirit of it all, right? And he really felt this, um, he said, when he walked into the, into the uh, opening ceremonies at McMahon Stadium. And he said, you know, I, there could be kids out there watching me walk into this who are inspired to say, maybe I can do this down the road. So you're right. It isn't just about being on the podium. It's, it's, it's about being there in
4: itself.
0: This uh, Jamaican bobsled team uh, documentary uh, on what happened to, by the way, on Apple Podcasts, uh, Global News, what happened to, uh, and they do such good work there. You know, lastly, did the Olympics sort of, like I said, you're a big sports fan, did the Olympics just sort of land kind of flat for you? We just didn't really have a, the the, the U.S. playing Canada in the women's hockey is always great, but my God. I found the men's hockey. I like hockey. I've liked it my whole life, but I've, I found it unwatchable. I, 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 I never had, I never thought the apathy would grow. Like that's almost an oxymoron in terms towards the men's hockey, but I couldn't have cared less.
3: Well, you know, the funny thing is, is I actually thought the Olympics might still be going on because of all the time t- time zone time. Differences, <laughs> but you no, know, no, I do know it ended. Um, the thing I mean, I love the winter games. I love the fact that the majority of the events have a level of insanity to them. Um, you know, uh, I love watching snowboard cross I love watching ski cross um you're right the hockey was really flat except from the women's teams um the, the thing I found the most tension from is watching the curling that to me was just like mentally exhausting it was it was it was great to watch but my god it was it was kind of like when you're watching those those hockey games back in the day when Canada's like Jesus are they gonna pull this thing off are we gonna win this you know um but i will I, I am looking forward to the next one in cortina when when uh, it's going to be a fantastic venue it's going to look amazing in milano cortina and and you know time zones will be back on our side
0: i and, hope so uh, I, I i hope so and i know you know you, you got your massive uh, fan of the canadian national soccer team so we're going to have like 11 a.m. primetime yeah. qatar games where it's like 36 degrees celsius And we're playing Switzerland in a really critical game in November, no less. So we've all felt a little off kilter. That's going to really throw our time space continuum uh, out of whack in November.
3: Exactly, exactly. But, you know, you're used to getting up in the middle of the night, so I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal.
0: <laughs> Everybody's got to go back to remember uh, what it's like to have uh, an infant in the house, and we're just going to have to oh, pretend. My exactly. Yeah, w- nobody wants that ever again. Uh, Rob Johnson uh, from Curious Cast. Check this podcast out on the Jamaican bobsled team, uh, hosted by the awesome uh, Erica Vella. Thanks for checking in with us, Rob. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you. Have a great family day.
0: Uh, Dr. Eric Cam is our guest. We missed our chat last week uh, with me uh, making my way back from uh los angeles uh and he joins me now economics professor at x university i'm gonna put the put you on the spot i just found a c-span president of the united states ranking here can you try how many of the top five ranked presidents according to c-span do you think you could name
5: uh according to c-span that's a tough one but we'll go with probably Oh, they like Obama. No, they like- no,
0: no, 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 no. Obama no. is 10th. Right behind Ronald Reagan. So it's not Reagan and it's not Obama. They're 9th and 10th, respectively. Think How about older. Bill Clinton? No, Bill Clinton is uh, is not on uh, on the list. Think older. We're really scaling back our demographic here, big time. Like, I don't know if we have any 300-year-old listeners. You never know.
5: You mean like the Come first on. couple, like we're going John Adams and John Quincy Adams, and no. people like this?
0: No, two of them have, two of them have a, the same last name. I'm opening that door up for you.
5: Oh, so the Bushes? No. But then the Adams. Who do you have? You have the Adams. You have the the Bushes. You have. I mean, there's only been one Kennedy. Who do you have left?
0: Well, okay, I'll give you three and four. There's an FDR and a Teddy Roosevelt. They're three and four, respectively
5: uh okay let me see fdr <laughs> teddy roosevelt um you, you harry got, truman you got,
0: uh, uh harry truman sixth i really like that guess i would have had harry truman in the top five too dwight d eisenhower's fifth come on go back um d- t- Coolidge, hat. hoover no giant hat a hat there's a monument named after him he sits on a
5: chair oh he sits on, oh uh this on Lincoln fellow. that's it oh and yeah okay one, yeah i thought well, he was famous cuz he 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 discovered the 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 Lincoln Continental, the car, the big car.
0: Yeah, I think he yeah, I think he gets uh he gets points uh in that. He gets he gets a percentage of that. And the first one, the first ever president. He said they been, they named a city after him. But they but uh, Oh, on. good old Georgie. That's it.
5: Yeah, they even so, named a magazine after. Remember once one of the I um, I mean may he rest in peace, Kennedy's son um named his magazine after him and called it George. Remember that?
0: John jr. Didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. JFK jr. Before the, actually
5: that was a, that was a really crash. sad day when they, they had to spend the day fishing him, um, out of, uh, I forget which body of water when he crashed the plane. It was unbelievable was, story. Uh, they,
0: they interrupted either the us open golf or the British open golf. Um, I remember that specifically that happened on the Saturday. Of a golf major, and I'm sitting there watching it with my dad, and uh, and yeah, boom, it's like John F. Kennedy. I don't know that you would do that in this day and age. but You might just leave that to the news writers. So, Lincoln, Washington, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Truman, Jefferson, JFK, Reagan, Obama. The modern ones get kind of the short end of the stick, and they're at the bottom end of that top ten.
5: So, where's Polk? Is Polk on that list? Is I don't know, know where Polk is.
0: Uh, oh, I see him in the middle. Uh, in the middle range, like Clinton oh. goes to the middle. I'm I'm really surprised. He's about like. 22nd all told by the way the uh, worst is not trump it's uh, james buchanan
5: um well except that welcome back cotter uh took place of course in james buchanan high That's right. so i have a bit of a soft spot for him
0: yeah now i don't know if james buchanan uh slept with that porn star and then had lawyers cover it up and, and made it up i don't understand why he'd be last and trump would be fourth last but okay if we're gonna you know uh if we're, if we're gonna play it that way Give me your sense as to how uh, how you saw the weekend playing out in Ottawa. I mentioned I, I left the air and I thought, okay, this is ramping up on Friday. Um, I've I've heard a lot of people, Eric, say, well, you know, Justin Trudeau, and and now we become uh, totalitarianism. I'm like, no, it just looks like incompetence. You you can't get the cops to even enforce any of the laws the first 22 days. That's the antithesis of authoritarianism
5: no i i saw you what you said yesterday on twitter and i thought you actually were bang on when you said totalitarianism doesn't take 23 days to clear out a problem it takes closer to 23 minutes it's as you know i I, again hate to sound like a skipping cd or a broken record but it was just a lack of leadership and it was a lack of direction Mm -hmm. and it's really what happens when things start to rot from the top down i mean I thought that if first of all it, it, as far as insurrections go I don't think this was a you know a a, a well a well thought of or a, a, this was not an attempt to throw over the government so let's not get carried away It was what happens when people's tempers flare on both sides and and then the mayor of ottawa pulls a disappearing act like the prime minister likes to do and so then when you have when you have no prime minister and you have no mayor sometimes the lunatics start to run the asylum and that's no different than any organization and so you saw what happens when there's a breakdown and It had its moment and now it's coming to an end. And I thought it made for decent theater, decent television on the weekend. But let's try to keep it in perspective. Totalitarianism, no. USSR politics, no. Overthrow of the government, no. A mess. Yeah, Greg, sure. It was a mess.
0: Dr. Eric joining us uh, from X University. This is the one thing people have said to me about left v. Right is that they notice a little bit of a difference now in that maybe the left is now on the side of of the powerful and and maybe the pandemic has started that and pushed that um that they they view this is how they view it okay whether they're right or not that the media even people like me are on the side of the government and they take any kind of political dissent um personally and uh and and we have a a lot of argument about who deserves basic civil rights? Like if you're working class and everybody who's been working class throughout this pandemic knows this. They're the ones you and I have talked about this. They have braved the plague. They have put themselves at risk more than the laptop slash pajama class have. They deliver food. They uh, uh, they work in essential workplaces and they or they truck food around and they didn't feel that they had the rights that the rest of us had. During these last two years, and I think that's factored into a lot of the anger here is that they view the left as now being on the side of the powerful. And it wasn't that way 25, 30 years ago in, in Canada or the United States. There's none of this workers of the world unite. The workers do feel that the media and and a lot of people have, have abandoned them and let them down. That seems obvious to me now.
5: Well, and it's and it's a damn shame, too, because these are the real heroes of the last two and a half years. Trust me, it's not the people sitting in University Towers or in Ottawa. But, you know, if you step back from what you're saying, and I agree, um, I I have even a sort of a, a larger, more philosophical problem with all of these titles, which is I don't know who is anything or what anything represents anymore back in the 1980s when I was still, OK, a high school student and then a university student, I would have told you, frankly, that I was a proud conservative. I, I thought that I really fell under the guise of a conservative because I was fiscally conservative. And I, I know that you're a little bit left of me and I'm a little bit right of you. But I mean, in the long run, who cares? Um, but I would have called myself a conservative. And then all of a sudden, the term conservative got a little bit usurped by people who had absolutely nothing in common with me and became associated with 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 the religious right and now i sit here today to your point and someone will say to me well what are you who you know what do you who do you side with i don't even know anymore i just try to side with with hard-working honest people who want to raise their families and make a living and pay their mortgages I, I don't know if that's left i don't know if it's right i don't know if it's conservative i don't know if it's democrat I don't know what it is anymore. And I think that that's even in a larger picture, the, the problem, I don't know. I, I don't know if these demarcations even exist anymore, but I know on the, on the side of people that wanna overthrow the government versus not overthrow the government, I don't wanna overthrow the government. I just want better government. And so I don't know where that puts me anymore. But if people like healthcare workers and fast food workers and people that kept businesses open the last two and a half years, if they feel disenfranchised, we're really screwed because they're the people that did the heavy lifting over the last two and a half years, and they deserve nothing but credit. And anybody that has anything negative to say about these people, I just feel sorry for for the people saying the negative things. Greg,
0: yeah, uh, I brought it up last week. If it was healthcare workers blocking the Ambassador Bridge, um, maybe we're listening a lot more um, to wh- why they're there and what they want and it doesn't matter look it had to end in ottawa it was too much it was an occupation it was grinding business to a halt it was costing us multi-millions of dollars to have the the bridge closed in windsor um and and have it flirted with being closed in sarnia i want to get to more of those economic impacts but but i've said this to a guest two weeks ago because you brought up something really interesting i want to follow up on and that's when i was a kid it felt like the delineation between left and right was well, the right, and especially as you note, the the religious right, or as we'd call them now, social conservatives. They'd tell you what to do with your body. Well, you can't do this. You 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 can't you you can't abort a child. You can't do this. You can't do that. This is the you can't listen to those songs. You can't you can't bring that movie home. There was a little bit of a moral majority. COVID has seen us, I think, transfer that now to where the right is like. Hey, we're a little more libertarian than you thought. In some aspects, you live how you want to live. You measure your own risk. And it feels like a very, again, leftist pajama laptop class. That's like, don't you dare consider uh, taking that mask off any time in the next two years? Don't you dare consider consider traveling? How dare you? Um, And that's confused a lot of people. And that's left a lot of people politically homeless.
5: That's right. And it's confusing me uh, as well. Uh, in a university too, you don't know whether you're left or right. It seems to depend on the issue. And and uh, for anyone listening yesterday, um, I got into a a little bit of hot water, thanks to Twitter, after being on the Roy Green show. So I'm a little scared to say what I'm about to say. But I think your point is exceptionally well taken about those two issues that you just mentioned. Um, I am out of the closet. I don't care if the listeners know, but I am pro-choice when it comes to the abortion issue, and I am completely in favor um, of supporting gay marriage, mm. gay rights. I, I wish we could pull the name "gay" off the front. They're just marriage and rights. And uh, so mm. I've had conservatives Twitter me and email me after appearances and say, "Well, you are the you are not." A conservative. And how dare you call yourself a conservative with those views? But I say, but I am fiscally conservative. And they go, well, we don't care if you're fiscally conservative. If you believe in, in a woman's right to choose, you're not a conservative. And then I just scratch my head and I go, well, then you know what? I give up. I don't know what I am anymore. Maybe I'm just Canadian. Maybe I'm just the guy who would like some fiscal conservatism and, and socially let people be maybe in general, less government intervention into the whole damn system, because I don't know what I am, but I've had the left yell at me. Mm -hmm. I've had the right yell at me. I've had anti-Semites yell at me. I've had everybody yell at me and I'm getting tired of not having a team. Maybe that's why I love the Miami dolphins. They don't yell at me.
0: It could be it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I, I think your, your experience isn't much different than mine uh, and it's not much different than a lot of people's feeling uh, they want to find a home again right now. And there's a lot of people that lean more left than right that watched, watched the prime minister and, uh, and didn't like the tone and didn't like the attitude and, and and saw a guy totally bereft of leadership and ideas. To be honest, I got to leave it there. I hate leaving it there, but thanks for making an appearance on family day. Go enjoy your family. Thanks for coming on our show as always.
5: Yeah, you too. Tell your wife to travel safe and stay healthy.
0: Thanks so much for listening. We're back with a live show tomorrow. As you uh, reassume your work week, so do we as well. We keep ours going. 5.30 to 9, which you can hear on 640 Toronto at 640toronto.com or right here where you found us for today's podcast. Thanks very much for listening.